<laughs> Wonderful. Open up God's Word with me to 1 Peter, and we'll be in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. It's been a while since we've been in 1 Peter, and God willing, we'll head this way for the next few weeks. 1 Peter chapter 3, if you're following along on the screen, feel welcome to do so. If you have a copy of God's Word on your own, feel free to look there. 1 Peter 3 and verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter, if you recall, is writing to those who believe in Jesus. They were probably exclusively at that point, or at least predominantly at that point, from the Jewish race. They'd been scattered, and they're living abroad, so to speak. And they're living in a time when the government of their area was suppressing those who believed in Jesus. They were seeing it as a great threat because Christians called Jesus Lord, but if you were a true Roman citizen, you should call Emperor Lord. So they were understanding that this was a direct conflict to their own religious practice. And to call Jesus Lord could cost you your life. So from a, a perspective of what this scripture is talking about, if we're going to suffer for doing good, the suffering that Peter could have in mind was even dying for doing good deeds in Jesus' name and being outed for it. That if someone asks you, why do you serve so well? Why do you keep doing good deeds? I see this behavior. I want to know what's going on. And you said, well, if I tell him I'm a Christian, I could die. But, Let's be honest, the real reason I'm doing it is because I love Jesus. And to have the courage that when called upon to give a reason for the hope within you, you say, you know why I do this? It's because Jesus is my Lord. And I used to be self-centered and not care and angry and everything else under the sun. And although times that's still a struggle for me, Jesus is Lord and he's changing me. He's working in me. And this is why I do all these good deeds. And so that whatever's going on in the life of a Christian in the first century, we have to have some historical perspective. Forgive me as I tie my shoe. <laughs> it may be that you and I will suffer to some extent for righteousness' sake. Certainly to be slandered to be a Christian. If you stood up, college students in your auditorium, and there was some defamation of character against Jesus, and you stood up and said, well, just so you know, you're actually speaking against me because I too am a follower of Jesus. You know that you could be ridiculed and slandered. Your grade would be a reflection, perhaps, of the negative and critical view. 
If you're a student in high school or middle school and you stand for Jesus, even through your good deeds, even through a silent profession, but they can see your character, you might need to expect, because this scripture is pointing us in this way, that it will cost you something. You may be in the workplace, your place of employment, and you understand the rules that are there and You understand you're not supposed to talk about religion, but you also understand that your light is shining and the good deeds that are flowing out of your life call attention to yourself. You can't hide that light. And someone might come to you and say, why do you do such a good job? Everyone else is dogging it. Everyone else is just going through the motions, but you seem to care. And we'll be faced with that moment, should I tell them that I am a follower of Jesus Christ? Not as a religious statement, but as a statement of purpose as a statement of the reason for my good deeds emanate from a source beyond me. His name is Jesus. And so Peter is writing and encouraging. And over the next few weeks, God willing, we'll see and hear more about the suffering that we should expect as a follower of Jesus. But what caught my attention was the very first verse in this series. Verse 13. He asked the rhetorical question. He's moving from an entire way of thinking about goodness, God's goodness, our good deeds, our good acts. And he's going to talk about suffering. So he asked this question as he pivots. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what's good? Who's out there really going to bring harm to your life if you're just going hard? passionate, excited for what's good. What really do you have to fear? What really should we be afraid of? Who's out there really going to do damage if you just continue down the path that's good? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, just to give you a little sample of where he's been taking us on goodness, Peter asks and states several things about goodness. Chapter 2, verse 3, he makes this statement, If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. He starts with the Lord being good. 1 Peter 2, 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2, 13, be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, and endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. First Peter 3, 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. First Peter 3, 10. For whoever de- desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. We are supposed to be do-gooders. As Christians, we are supposed to be doing good all the time, pursuing good. When people look at the quality of our work on Monday morning, they should say, good job. You're a good worker. 
you've put forward the effort and the passion to produce something that's good. And that emanates from our having tasted that the Lord is good. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It's that people should look at us, not that we in ourselves are good. And not that our good deeds would make us right with God. But that as the communion table reminds us, we were born good. And then came Genesis 3, when our father and mother Adam and Eve fell into sin. Into open rebellion. And God said, great. You ate from the tree that I told you not to. Now you'll get what you want. The knowledge of good and evil. So now we have full understanding. We've partaken fully of God's goodness and we've fully partaken of the evil. We are then born evil and good. We are born sinners. We are born by default, having already inherited in our DNA, in our morality, our ethics. We are a mixed bag. Read an article from the Huffington Post on how we would understand being a good person. To ask that question. What does it look like to be a good person? How would you know if someone's a good person? Because you'll hear that phrase all the time. Oh, he's a good person. Ah, oh, that guy's a good guy. Ah, oh, she's good. She's a good soul. And so I look now to a secular publication to find out what does the world outside the church consider when they give the quality of a good person. Kimberly Yam in 2015 wrote the article. She starts it this way. It turns out you don't have to be Mother Teresa to be a good person. You just got to give up on that last piece of cheesecake. Well, I already failed there. All right, maybe you don't agree. After all, being a good person means different things to different people. Here we go. And it all depends on who you ask. In David Brooks' viral New York Times piece, The Moral Bucket List, he shares his own interpretation. They seem deeply good. They listen well. They make you feel funny and valued. Those are the people we want to be. Curious to see what other readers thought? Huffington Post Good News asked people on Facebook and Twitter, what makes someone a good person? Because we all know Facebook and Twitter is where to get the best information. (laughs) But it's pertinent information. And here's what she records. Someone wrote, I think being a good person is doing the right thing even when no one else is watching. That's a pretty good answer. Another person said, start with yourself. If you feel good about your actions, others will too. (laughs) Not so sure about that one. Are you kind? Everything else seems not nearly as important. I would say a good person should be kind. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. I love this one. You know that person who leaves an opening on the road when stopping in front of a driveway or it just allows your car to to get in? That's a good person. (laughs) And how many of us have been that person who's like, I'm not letting them in. We won't even we won't even make eye contact. We know they're there. They're looking, they're like, they're leaning, they're giving us the hey, hey, 
bad, bad Brian. <laughs> Another person wrote, having good manners. A good person has good manners towards everyone, no matter what age, relationship, status, race, education, wealth, or lack thereof. And they remember to say thank you and please. And lastly, to me, a good person, someone wrote, is one who understands that building people up far outweighs tearing them down. Boy, I like that. And I would say these comments are very helpful. I mean, we're talking about kindness, courtesy, manners, building people up. But I am troubled by the author of the article's statement when asked, what makes a good person? She says, well, you get different answers from different people. And then she concludes by saying, one thing is clear, there is no correct response. Boo. Really? The Bible has nothing to say on goodness? There's no objective measure for what is good versus what's evil? Is it simply what you project it to be? Is it simply what you call it to be? Or is there a standard? Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 17. This is mentioned in several of the the Gospels. We'll read it just a few verses from Mark 10, beginning in 17. And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher! What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. God's good. There is a standard. Jesus, although even being the Son of God, did not claim that divinity. You recall Philippians, he humbled himself to the point of being a servant to go to the cross for us. He took on humanity. He doesn't then say, yes, I am a good teacher because I'm divinity. He just points the man to the penultimate truth. God alone is good. As a Christian, we know that. We know that doing good, being good, being a good person is ultimately exemplified in Jesus. He came as the perfect man. He came as the sinless one. He came to show us what goodness looks like incarnate. And this is why Peter sets him up as the example to follow. That in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants, speaking of Christians in the first century and today, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Amen. So that as we see God's goodness, we should be longing for that goodness. We should be yearning for that, like a baby yearning and longing for that next bottle of milk. We should be longing, Lord, I want more of you. I want more of you. You are so good. As a matter of fact, everything else in this world is a mixed bag. Every other person in this world is a little good, a little evil. But you alone are good. I'm going to long for you and I want to grow up in you, in your goodness. So the first thing we want to state is that there is an objective standard. It's Jesus. If you want to find one human who's good, perfectly good, it's the Son of God. His name is Jesus. And we can follow his example and it will be good. 
We can listen to how he responds to criticism, and it will be a good way to respond to criticism. We can follow his example on any issue of life, and it will always be good. He will never lead you astray. Jesus wasn't put on the cross because he did anything evil. He was put on that cross because he said that he was the I am. That he was the Lord. He was crucified for being divine, not for being a sinner. Secondly, I'd say we can understand goodness by simply having tasted of the badness. Simply having lived in this world, we can discern very quickly the difference between good and evil. For instance, you are thumbing through a magazine or a journal or your history textbook in high school and you'll see the gas chambers used in Auschwitz to eradicate an entire population of Jewish people. No one would look at that picture and say, that's good. Everyone instinctively knows that's bad. You can listen to a song on the car radio, perhaps on your Spotify. You're at the gymnasium and they're pumping it over the loudspeaker and it's all about sensuality and sexuality and getting down and doing it up and everything else. And in your spirit, you know, that's not good. You can overhear a conversation. Not that you were eavesdropping, you just happened to be at the water cooler, you're passing by, and you hear the gossip going out, and you instinctively know, that's not good. Knowing the difference between good and evil is very easy. Doing good, on the other hand, may be less easy. Because we reckon in our own self that it takes work to do good. Let's just remember the story of creation. Adam and Eve, they were made, and God called everything good. Then the fall came. We ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We fell into the evil. Now on the other side of the fall, what does God say as part of the discipline, the punishment? Now, man, you're going to have to work for it. The thorns and the thistles are going to grow. Now, woman, you're going to give childbirth, you're going to do the very thing I called you to do, be fruitful and multiply, but it's going to hurt like, you fill in the blank. It's going to be pain. And so this is our human instinct. We don't want to work hard because it's part of that curse sometimes. We feel the effort and the exhaustion when we work. When sometimes we work so hard to pull up the thorns and thistles only to see them grow back instantly. And who wants pain? What human being longs for pain? Oh, that I might suffer today. Oh, sure, we go to the gym and for the you know, 30-minute workout, it's painful. We go to work and for those eight hours, it's painful. But then we want to go home and do anything but work. We want to go home and have the least amount of pain possible. We have chairs that you can lean back on and your feet go up. Someone here told me they had a dog who comes and licks their toes. I don't know if that's relaxing on the feet, but I guess it's a massage of sorts. In other words, I want us to be human today as we think about what's going to come next. I want us to recognize that this is not easy, and I'm not suggesting it's easy. Sometimes when preachers get up here, I could be the worst one to just make it sound, Amen, let's do it! This is hard. But remember our audience These are people who are about to potentially lose their life. And rather than make their life comfortable with no pain, Peter prepares them for the pain. 
rather than lie to them, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't want to sit here and tell you being a Christ follower is easy. Everything's going to be so. It's not a lot of work. Just come and sit back. We got these fuzzy pews. You can kind of lean back. We'll keep the service to three hours. It'll be great. Peter says, no, if I could just summarize some of the actions he was calling believers to prior to chapter 3, verse 13. He says, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed in Jesus. Love one another. Purify your souls. As if that wasn't hard enough, put away hatred, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and to grow up in our salvation. All things we need to pursue. And he gives us a special word instead of pursue. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 13 again. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? He doesn't say pursue what's good. Try to do some good stuff. Give it an old college try. He says be zealous for what's good. Be a fanatic. Go crazy with enthusiasm. Get all fired up and stirred up and excited. There should be a huge smile on your face. I get to do something good for Jesus. I get to exemplify his goodness on this crippled world. This world of sin and death and degradation. And he's chosen me among all the other peoples of this world to stand as an example of goodness. Oh Lord, I praise you. I want with enthusiasm now to be good. I want to zealously pursue good. I want to wake up in the morning and be thinking about a cup of coffee and goodness. Hey, all right. That's what I thought, because it's hard work. Who wants to be zealous? Who wants to put all that effort in and then wake up the next morning and put all that effort in and wake up the next morning and put all that effort in? We should go to the grave tired. Because then we enter our rest. See, the devil's lied to us. He's told us you can rest now. He's told us you can just take it easy. Oh, you don't have to work so hard. Let someone else do it. You deserve it. You deserve your rest. I'm not saying exhaust yourself to the point of having an ill-cared-for soul or an ill-cared-for body. But I'm talking about with zeal in your belly, fire in your soul, pursuing what is good, without reservation and without fear. Without fear that someone's going to find out you're a Christian. Without fear that someone's going to start putting you down. Without fear because what harm can come to you? You're living for the Lord. He's watching. Not only watching you to record your deeds of goodness, but watching over you. He's your overwatch. And he's not going to let the enemy have one piece of territory on your life that he has not permitted him. He is like a dog on a chain. And Christ can yank him back. So when we get to the part where they're suffering, believe me, there is a question we will have to ask ourselves in every situation in life. Lord, am I suffering right now because it's part of your greater plan? Or am I suffering because I did something dumb? Those are the two options. But in terms of pursuing good, there's no option. It's zealous. It's all in. It's go for it. 
And church, I want to awaken your soul for a moment. I want to tell you that when people get complacent in the church, when Christians get complacent, I've been in this long enough now to see what happens. They will fall away. I'm not saying God won't love them. He will. I'm not saying they're going to lose their salvation. What I'm saying is they're going to fall away into the evil. And old habits and old trappings and temptations, stuff that they had beaten back and overcome, comes back over them. All because they stopped pursuing. You see, when you run a race, if I can just give you one more scripture, I want to show you a video in a moment to help us all. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. When you run a race, this is what the Apostle Paul says we should be thinking about. Reading from the New Living Translation, because I liked it. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs? I was at the Boston Marathon. I, you know, years ago, I wasn't this fat. I used to run. It was pretty fast. I ran the Boston Marathon for fun. Back of the pack. You get to the starting line, off and going. Everyone's there running. Everyone's, everyone's running. Some are running faster, some are running slower. But everyone's running. Now the question is, are you running for what purpose? Because some people are running and it's like a social hour. They, they were in costumes, people running. There was a guy who had like a corn dog costume on. And he's running, hey, corn dog. He was having fun. That's his purpose. He's not running to win. He's running to celebrate corn dogs. And that's fine. There's people running, and they, they, they were raising money. They had matching shirts on. They're part of a big group, and they had all fundraise. And so let's do it. That's awesome. That's their purpose. But you know who was out at the front of the pack? People from Kenya. <laughs> Kenyans in the house? All right. Oh, there were some others from East Africa mingled in there. There's a guy from Mexico. There's some, some pretty fast Latins. There's always a Finnish person or Swedish person out there, pretty good marathoner. Oh boy, those Kenyans can fly. <laughs> and you go to the gym and you say, man, I ran a 10-minute mile. They would have run two miles in your one and then done it for 26 in a row. Because the rest of this passage says, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. And the people who run to win finish. The people who say, I want to win. And, and, and I realize, I, I'm in that race. I'm not going to beat the Kenyans. I wasn't running to beat them. That wasn't going to define win. I was running to beat a certain time. I wanted to finish under four hours. And that meant that I had to gear my mind and dedicate my entire soul and body and watch and keep track of my pace to ensure that I was going to get my victory. And now your finish line is to enter into your heavenly rest, your eternal rest. And until that time, we are on a fast pace to get there. Because the ones who start getting their mind, instead of having a sober mind, a clear mind, their mind gets cluttered. Oh, I'm starting to get a pain in my hip. Maybe I should go slower. Oh, I'm starting to feel not so good. Oh, it's windy out. You start thinking about everything else? Maybe I should just pull over and stop for a little while. And those are the ones who fall away. Those are the ones who don't finish because in their mind it wasn't set for action. 
Once your mind is set for action, you can set your emotions. They will follow your mind. It's a mental challenge to be a Christian. To say in your mind, I'm going to go the distance with Jesus and I'm going to pursue good with zeal starts here and then it impacts here. I'm tired. I don't feel like it. Those things don't matter when you set this right. Of course you don't feel like it. Then your mind says, yeah, but you set a goal. Now get over it, Brian, and go. And you can fill in your name. And I'm asking you to have a sober mind, a clear mind, to have a fixed mind, to put your mind on what's really important, to pursue it. Even if others may ridicule you, as this passage said, even if others may slander you, even if your own family, even if your own spouse may say, why are you getting all excited about Jesus? You see, because that's one of the main reasons we don't get fired up about Jesus. We're afraid of what everyone else is going to think. We're just too busy worrying about what everyone else is going to think. The prophet Isaiah chapter 2 says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? The person next to you has the same makeup as you. Why are we trying to please them? Why are we running the race to make them happy? Run to win the race. Now, it's exciting when you're around people who are zealous. It's enthusiastic. When you get up to that starting line of the Boston Marathon, people are going, you're like, man, you start running faster than you ever have, actually. The first few miles, and you're like, I better slow down because I don't don't know what I'm doing. I'm way out here. I'm going to get tired. And you kind of, you get that initial high, that kind of, it's really exciting to be around people who are passionate. It's equally true when you're hanging around negative people. Power down. This, earlier this week, I was around some super positive people, faith-filled people. Went to a missions conference, a ministry that we've supported for probably close to 25 years, One Hope. If you've been around our church a while, we used to call it Book of Hope. If you're around them as long as I have, it used to be called Life Publishers. And all their name changes, what hasn't changed is their mission is pretty much the same. They want to give God's word to every child in the world. God's word, every child. And this year they set a faith goal that we want to give out 123 million copies of God's word around the world. Some of them are as small as something like this. They take portions of God's word. And someone will physically go to a school or go to a a, a park or go to a place of gathering. And sometimes they'll show a film like the Jesus film or they'll show a, a, a film like the God man and something to, to, to tell the story and then they're going to give someone God's word and say, Jesus, the one we've heard about, wrote these words. And if you give your life to Jesus and believe in his word, you can know God and you can have eternal life, the free gift. You're eternally loved. And I got excited when I was there when I saw this film. And I made a faith pledge which I came home and submitted to our global ministry directors, Stephen Lynn Roy. And I'm going to ask you to participate in that faith today. But I want to introduce this film and have you watch it first. The film is interesting because it's the story, the true story of a man named Felix. And as a young man, he had to walk through the suffering and the slander and the ridicule we just heard from 1 Peter. And he accepted that. And follow Jesus. And there was pain in that. And there was rejection in that. But now there's fruit in that. That as someone gave him the seed of the word of God, he is now planting that seed 
in thousands and thousands and thousands. The story takes place in Senegal, West Africa. It's in the Sahel region. Going from Senegal all the way across Mali, Niger, Eritrea. This is the area between the Sahara and between the lush growth of sub-Saharan Africa. If you've come from the African continent, I'm telling you this story because it's Felix's story. I'm not trying to make any claim about that this is everyone's story. I'm not trying to make Africa look a certain way. I know Africa is a rich country. It's a blessed country or a continent is amazing. So I just want to set that up. Please don't let the enemy trick you in this moment. I'm not saying anything about the African people. I want to tell you a story of God's redemption, moving someone from Islam to Christianity. His name is Felix, if we have the video. Let's watch together. very difficult for my family. There were days that we didn't have enough to eat. Our lives were spent walking in the field and studying the Quran. As the eldest child, my father felt that I was going to be a religious leader in our community someday. Much of my time was spent preparing for that day. When I turned 15, I got an education certificate from my village and there were no additional opportunities for me there. That's when I decided to go to a large city near my home called Fatigue to get a degree. After arriving, I was invited to see a movie called The Jesus Film and at the end I was handed a blue book called The Book of Hope. Before getting the book and seeing the film, I didn't even know that Christianity existed. The book was the first piece of Christian literature I had ever encountered, and it put a lot of questions in my mind. On summer break, I went back to my village and met with my Muslim teacher to ask some questions that I had been wrestling through. Questions like, is there a verse in the Quran that guarantees salvation? And what can I do to be saved? My teacher gave me indirect answers and was unable to answer the questions for me. That's when I decided to reach back out to the missionary that gave me the Book of Hope. He then connected me to a local church pastor in fatigue. That pastor discipled me and I decided then to give my life to Christ. At that point, when I would travel home, I continued going to the mosque because I didn't have the strength to confront my father with my newfound faith. But when I would go to the mosque, I prayed to Jesus instead of Allah. As I kept growing in my faith and reading my Bible, the day came that I had the courage to tell my father. He went into a rage 
unlike I had ever seen. My father was so upset that he kicked me out of our house and our village. The rest of the villagers rejected me as well, and I had no family and no place to go. That's when I ended up leaving my hometown and going back to Fatik. The pastor that had been discipling me took me in and allowed me to stay with his family. It was during that time I felt God calling me to go to Bible college and that's how I became a pastor. What my father said to me long ago was correct. I am a spiritual leader. I point others to the one true God. Now I am forever grateful. The book of hope opened my eyes and allowed me to know the Lord. That changed the direction of my life forever. Today, I get to share the same hope with others. I serve as the director of the Sahil region in Africa for One Hope. That's Felix, and he was at the conference, and he stood before us, and then Bob, the founder of the Book of Hope, One Hope, came forward. He said, let me tell you the rest of the story. He said, that church in Fatik, he said, that has significance to my own ministry, and Bob began to explain that in 1960, he and his wife, just newly married, went to West Africa to Senegal to do ministry, crusades, evangelism. And they had a burden. At that time, much of the ministry was on the coast. They had a burden to go inland. And there was one person who could fly them in a bush plane inland. And they got there and they held crusades in fatigue. And he said it was just like Felix said. They were so filled with the Muslim rage for the Sahel region. 94% Muslim, 3% Christian, 3% animist. So they were so filled, they were, they were hurling things at us, they were degrading us, we could, we, we could barely have our own safety. And the Lord said to me, call them forward for healing. And he said, we called the sick and the infirm forward, and in miraculous ways, through our simple prayers of faith, people began to get healed, and the tide turned. And out of, he said there was like 50,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. Out of that, two churches were planted. One of them was the same church that Felix found refuge in. And now that same Felix is working under Bob's ministry, and he's in charge of giving God's word to every child in the Sahel. Would you help them? I felt compelled and filled with faith to say, our church, above everything else we do for missions, we'd give $10,000 this year. Would you plant the seed right now? Join with me. Let's take an offering, a first fruits offering, and plant a seed in this direction. Ushers, would you come down? You may not be prepared. This may be catching you off guard, but I want to ask if you have something to give today and this has touched your heart and your spirit, please give. All of it's going to go help Felix reach children in the Sahel. Reach Muslim children for Jesus. Felix in the 1990s had never heard of Christianity. When he gave his life to Jesus, no one had ever told him there was even an option. And we'll... Give God the glory for Felix.
You can make a check. Ushers go a little slower. They're, they're, they're filling stuff out here. I usually want you to move fast, but I'm going to have to coach you here now. They're, they're writing checks. I see checkbooks. If you give online, Esther, will you come for a moment here? Thank you. If you give online, you can go when you get home or now, and you'll see on the missions giving, there's a drop down. You'll have an opportunity to give to missions. You can give in that way, or it'll say another drop down, special offering. Last special offering, that's this. You can give in that regard. No compulsion, just a free will. And then we're going to pray. Because that level of persecution some of us may have felt. We have people in our church today and they've testified that they were raised Muslim and found Jesus Christ. And they struggle in those family relationships. You may be struggling in a family relationship here, even locally, because you follow Jesus, you find tension. You may be struggling in your neighborhood, your place of employment, because you're trying to do things ethically and in the light, and that may not be what people want. They want you to falsify a record. They want you to fill out a time card incorrectly. But you say, no, I can't do that. We want to pray. And after we pray, we'll dismiss and you want to come and linger our pastoral care team will be here if you want to give your life to Jesus the only way to salvation is through Jesus believing in Jesus means you believe that the work he's done for you is the work necessary so you can know God no work that you can do or I can do can make us right with God only the work of Jesus his death and his resurrection, that he came back to life. Father, we are praising you and giving you thanks that you used the Apostle Peter to pen these words so that we would understand suffering for the gospel. You used Felix and his story to show us how powerful you are to provide for us even when we suffer, when we're rejected, when we're ridiculed. And we thank you, sovereign God. You will do the same for us. Lord, you know the needs here, the suffering, the persecution, the ridicule, the slander, the negative criticism, everything coming our way because we stand for you. Oh, mighty God, as it is according to your will, let it be done so that you would be glorified. And that those who are defaming your name would be put to shame. May they see the good works in us and glorify our God in heaven. May they see the goodness that you've placed in us by your spirit and be drawn to it. May many come to know you here through our testimony. And may many children and young people know you in the Sahel. Almighty oh, one, bring your light to the Sahel. Bless our brother Felix. Bless him, encourage him, supply everything he needs in his family. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.